legitimately about 30 people on Instagram messaged me about this yesterday. So the question is, Mike, why is this the last iFast internship group ever? Hello and welcome to the Physical Preparation Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Robertson, and this is the February Q&A episode. So first and foremost, hope you're having an amazing week, crushing life. Uh, Lots going on over here. I'm going to do a little bit of a uh, life recap. I've been doing less of these mostly because, man, the shows have been a little bit longer. We've got some really, really high-level people that are coming on the show, so I don't want uh, myself and what's going on in my life to be a distraction. So we'll do these uh, little life recaps whenever I do a Q&A episode, but man, lots going on, just a lot going on in life. Uh, probably since the last time I did one of these, Kendall had her birthday, uh, so she is 12, which is crazy to think, number one, that she's 12, probably even crazier to imagine that in another year I'm going to have a teenager on my hands. (laughs) Luckily, we're not getting uh, too much of the famed teenage angst or teenage rage or any of that stuff just yet. Man, she's amazing. Such an awesome girl. And man, I just, I wouldn't be the person I am without her. So definitely had an amazing couple days. Really, I think we stretched it out to about a week with her birthday. But yes, love that girl. Happy birthday, Kendall. Uh, Lots of sportsing going on. We kind of had a little bit of a dead period in November and December where Kay didn't have too much going on. Uh, Kendall only had limited soccer practices, so we got to do speed camp. But man, things have definitely cranked up here. Uh, Kendall is pretty into the soccer thing right now. It's been fun to watch. Uh, She's got two practices and a game. Uh, She got invited to practice with another team, which is a little bit higher level, so that's exciting. Uh, She's doing like a skills clinic once a week, so... Man, I feel like I live at the Indy Premier facility <laughs> these days. There's uh, one of the coaches that works for the club that I, I'm pretty friendly with, and he's like, man, we need to build you uh, like a little workstation or like lounge area up top. I was like, I know, man, I'm here a lot. <laughs> so anyway, she's doing great. Um, really just fun to watch her her game grow and evolve, and I feel like almost every day you can see an improvement and an evolution in how she's playing She's just seeing things better, making the right decisions, and really getting skilled. So that's been great. Cade has basketball, which I am coaching. Uh, It's been an experience. Um, I think I might have mentioned this at some point, but regardless, you know, he's just not a huge basketball guy, uh, which breaks my heart just a little bit because I love basketball. But we've come to the realization he's not a huge basketball guy. So we need him to do something, right? So this is probably the last year he'll play basketball, but we we moved down a level, right? So if you think of the levels locally, there's like travel and elite, the kids that are playing year round. You've got mud sock, which is like two practices a week in a game, but it's a long season. It's like four months. And even if the kids like basketball, a lot of times by the time you're at the end of the season, they're kind of burnt. So we didn't want to do that. So we're just playing upward basketball very easy, one practice a week, one game a week. Man, the first game, we legitimately lost 48 to 12. <laughs> it was it was bad. Um, but we have slowly gotten better and better. So uh, the second game was better by the scoreboard, right? We only lost by 18, but the downside was we only scored four points. So since then, the last two games, we've only lost by 12. 
And last week we played, which was probably the best team in the league. We only lost by 12, and man, it was like a two or four point game going into, they do six quarters, even though I wouldn't call it a quarter, it's a period. But regardless, we go into the fifth period, I think we're down two or four, and just the wheels fell off. Like, couldn't rebound, couldn't shoot. I think we probably gave up eight or ten straight points, so really close game. And so I'm excited. We got, I think, maybe three or four more games left, really hoping we can get these guys a win uh, because, man, they've played really hard and they've gotten a lot better this year. So that has been good. Coming off the All-Star break, uh, obviously not for me, but the NBA and G League All-Star break, so it was good. I had Ed back, uh, got to see him, got three good workouts in with him, getting his body and his mind right for the stretch run in the season. Uh, got to see Dakota for a day. Uh, he has a lot going on. Obviously, his wife has a very successful business in Lafayette. So they have a lot going on, but it was great to catch up with both of those guys and just see them kind of just touch base, see where they're at. I mean, you can text and you can DM, but there's nothing that surpasses that face-to-face connection. So it was great to see them and catch up, and hopefully you know, they can really finish this season strong. And then last but not least, just like training, life. Uh, training has been going exceedingly well. I'm going to talk a little bit about this uh, soccer thing that I've been doing a little bit on the weekends. I've learned a lot from that, so I'll fill you guys in on that. But training just as a whole has been going really well. Body feels good. So lots of good things going on, lots to be grateful for. Uh, I hope you can say the same. So we're going to take a quick break. I've got some really awesome questions today, guys, so I'm excited to share this with you. So quick break, and then we'll jump into this Q&A episode. Did you know that in any given year, 40% of the trainers and coaches in our industry will leave our industry? Maybe that's why it seems like almost every day I talk to trainers and coaches who are frustrated. Maybe they're frustrated with the results they're getting. Maybe they're frustrated because they don't have trusted resources to learn from. And maybe they're frustrated because they simply don't have enough clients and wonder how long they'll be able to stay in the industry. So if this sounds anything like you, let me tell you how I can help. My Complete Coach Certification was created for trainers and coaches just like you. People who are serious about the results they get and know that becoming a better coach can directly translate to a bigger bottom line. This certification is going to take the last 20 plus years of my life's work and put it all into one massive course. In the cert, you'll learn how to use my R7 system to create seamless, integrated and efficient programs for clients and athletes of all shapes and sizes. You'll learn the exact progressions, regressions, and coaching cues I use in the gym to help your clients squat, hinge, press, and pull with awesome technique. You'll learn my streamlined assessment process that will help you determine the exact movements your clients should be performing when they come in the gym. And last but not least, you'll learn how to create relationships and build rapport with virtually everyone you train so you can get the best possible results. Of course, there's a lot more that I cover, but that should give you a pretty good idea of what the CERT is all about. Now here's the thing, spots for the CERT only open twice per year for a limited time. But if you join my free insiders list now, you'll be able to save $200 when my next group opens. To get on the insiders list, just head over to completecoachcertification.com. Again, That's completecoachcertification.com, and then stay tuned for our launch emails very soon. Thank you so much for your support, 
and I hope you'll join us when the next Complete Coach Certification launches. Okay, my friend, let's jump right in. My first question of the day comes from Steve Long, who was not coincidentally just on the podcast a couple weeks ago, but Steve's question goes as such. I give you a pain-free athlete that moves well, and you only have five performance tests to determine athletic potential and write a program. What tests do you pick? So this is a fantastic question. I like the constraints he put on me here because, man, if he already says they move well, no pain, and we're focusing on performance, these are the five that I'm going to pick. I really wrote down four. The fifth would be a catch-all, and you're definitely going to see the influence of the force plates here. So my four tests, number one would be an isometric mid-thigh pull. Number two would be a counter-movement jump. Number three would be a rebound counter-movement jump. And number four would be a 10-yard dash. All right, now I'll give you uh, some more insights into this, but if you want you know, kind of a podcast that dives deeper into this, I will link to the podcast that I did with Drake Berbere a couple months ago, uh, where we dive into some of the various tests you can do on a force plate. But I want to give you my thoughts, right? So the isometric mid-thigh pull is a fantastic test for assessing force production, right? Both maximal force production and when coached and cued a little bit differently for chasing or, or assessing rapid force production, so I love the isometric mid-thigh pull, not only because it gives me hard and concrete data, but it's incredibly easy to set up and coach, right? If I've got a young athlete that's never back squatted before, never deadlifted before, it's borderline criminal to, to take them in the gym and have them do 1RM testing or 5RM testing, really, for that matter, because they don't have the technical prowess to do those activities, but if I'm doing an isometric activity, as long as I can get them set up and in the right position, and I coach and cue it effectively, it's incredibly easy, and I can check and track them over time. So I love the isometric mid-thigh pull in that instance. Number two, counter-movement jump. And I would have said this uh, probably at any point in time in my career. If you're just looking for base level lower body power and explosiveness, you can't go wrong with a counter-movement jump. Now, in the past, we would have done this in different ways, right? Maybe I would have done it with a vertex. Maybe I would have done it with a jump mat. Now that I have force plates, right? If you don't have force plates, use those options. But since I have force plates, it allows me to dig a little bit deeper. And it allows me to start to figure out their strategy. So it's not just, oh, this person jumps 0.4 meters. It's how do they produce that, right? What strategies do they use? Are they uh, a shallow... Uh, squatter or a shallow jumper, and maybe that's something I need to address. Um, do they break very slowly? Um, are they more of a force or a velocity-based jumper? Like all of these things help me dig in and write more specific programs. So the counter movement jump would be second. Number three would be a rebound counter movement jump. The great thing about this test is it's two max effort jumps back to back. So not only do I get the benefit of seeing their counter movement jump, but I also see how they land, right? Which is one of the most important things. We talk so much about building a good set of breaks with our athletes. So, hey man, maybe they have this amazing counter movement jump. They've got an awesome gas pedal, Ferrari level gas pedal. But if you've got a VW Beetle brake system, <laughs> it's not gonna cut it. So it allows me to see not only how that first jump looks, but how do they land? How do they absorb and redirect that force 
to jump maximally a second time. So the rebound counter movement jump would be three, four, 10 yard dash. And this is incredibly simple. You could do this with a stopwatch. If you have timing gates, that's great. But a 10 yard dash, I think for me with an athlete is one of the purest assessments of overall athleticism. And I don't care what sport you coach, what sport you're around. I've coached just about all of them at this point in time. So whether we're talking baseball, basketball, soccer, football, lacrosse, rugby, just about any field or court-based sport, you have to accelerate. The positions you start out of may be different. Uh, The way you finish a play may be different. But every sport requires you to accelerate over short distances. So you give me a kid that can run a 10 in 1.5, 1.6 versus a kid that can run it in 2 flat, I'm going to show you a more athletic kid. Okay, so a 10-yard dash would be number four. And then the fifth one is really, I think, something that would be specific to that person or to that specific athlete. Um, You know, if it's maybe a baseball player, maybe I am going to do a table test with him, right? Because every baseball player wants to make sure that their shoulder and their elbow are healthy. So maybe I'm going to do some isolated shoulder range of motion testing. Even though it's not a performance test, I still want to evaluate it. Um, so that's kind of how I would set that up. Um, I think those four tests, the isometric mid-thigh pull, counter movement jump, rebound counter movement jump, and 10-yard dash would give you a fantastic overall overall profile of an athlete's athleticism. And from there, it's going to allow you to make really good training choices and program design choices for that kid going forward. Okay, this next question comes from my guy, Saul Jimenez. Saul Appreciate the question, man. Thanks for writing in. Saul wants to know, what insights have you gained from training yourself for soccer? Where are you in the process? I.e., have you started playing? Have you gained any insights into training other athletes? Are there any changes for next time? And have any of your athletes noticed changes? So great question here, Saul, even though there's like five questions in here. Um, For those of you that are unaware, uh, I kind of put this out there a while back, but One of the other dads on our soccer team just randomly asked me to play in a soccer league with him probably about two months ago now. And even though that fell through, the bug was firmly planted in my brain. I knew I wanted to get out there, um, just see what it was like to get out there and compete again. So I really set the wheels in motion, kind of changed my training up. A lot more explosiveness, a lot more velocity-based training, really tried to ramp my conditioning up because, man, going from general training, right, where you're just training to stay fit, stay healthy, move around, uh, be an above-average human being, going from that to preparing yourself to play sport, especially when you haven't played that sport in 20 years, is a big shift in training and emphasis. So uh, let me begin, Saul, by telling you, yes, I have gotten out there. Uh, I didn't play in a league, but they have like men's pickup on Sundays. And (laughs) the first day I go in, they literally uh, look at me and they say, look, you got two options here. On the left, you've got like the young fit guys that are going to run for two hours straight. On the right hand side, you've got the old and slow guys that are going to sub out a whole lot. And I said, beautiful. I love it. I'm going to the right. So I go out, start warming up. You know, I thought I did a pretty, pretty good warm up, started moving pretty well. Um, but then I start really trying to drive a ball. And before I even start playing, I'm not kidding, my rec fin tightens up. <laughs> I mean, you can't, 
you can't write this in a really bad joke or really bad movie. Like, I just don't even know how this happened. I felt like I was ready to play. But quad pull, basically, and at this point, you know, my wife's there. She's going to watch me play. I can't not play. So I get out there and basically try and figure out, okay, how can I play every ball with my right foot? with the inside of my foot, right? How can I not hit it with my laces? How do I not have to really lay this leg back and stretch that rec fem anymore? So one of the big things I learned was the value of recovery, right? Because if we go back the day before, we were all over the place. Like, I don't know what happened that day, but like Kate had a basketball game, I think. I think Kendall maybe had two soccer games. Then Kendall and I went to a high school basketball game super late. She had a lock-in. Uh, for her Girl Scouts, so I had to take her there. Didn't go to bed till like 11 or 12 that night. Then I had to be back at the lock-in at like 6.45 to pick her up. So, you know, I didn't sleep enough. Uh, Running around the, the day before, I wasn't well hydrated, so it's like, man, all of these things that we tell our athletes to do, I did not do. And so here I am expecting some sort of different result. So I think that was one of the, the biggest takeaways was, number one, Make sure that you're recovered and you're ready to play. Number two, I think one thing you really have to understand is that whatever you do in the gym, it doesn't equate to training or playing your sport. So, man, I'd done a lot of good stuff, right? Like, I felt really good about my training. If you watched uh, some of the, the Instagram reels that I was putting up at that time, I felt pretty bouncy, pretty explosive. But kicking a soccer ball is a very specific activity and one that I did not prepare myself for well enough, right? Just that act of laying back. So if you think when you go to strike a ball, man, there's a massive amount of stretch on that rec fin because you're extending the hip, you're flexing the knee. So really laying back and then driving through a ball, it's an explosive action that if you don't prepare your body for, will cause you issues. So I think that was one of the biggest things. I didn't do enough specific training leading up to that. So I think one of the big takeaways here was that if you're going to do stuff like this, yes, get in the gym, um, you know, do the things that look and feel like sport, but you have to chase some of those ballistic actions. So you either got to find a way to do it in the gym. Maybe I should have gotten on the Exerfly more and done a little bit more like leg extension focused work, more rate focused work. Um, so those are all things that, that I thought a lot about, um, lots of insights, obviously, um, I think one of the big things for me was just realizing how hard it is to prepare and then recover from sport. Again, I haven't played high-level sports in probably 20 years. I mean, I'd get out there every now and then, and maybe I'd kick the ball around in like a scrimmage with the kids, but nothing like this, where I'm really legitimately trying to compete. So I think the biggest takeaway for me is just remembering what it's like to be an athlete, what it's like to not be 100%. When you're running around, you're trying to, hey, I'm trying to make a play or I'm trying to work around this thing that's bothering me. How can I continue to contribute to be a helpful member of my team? So knowing what it's like to play with an injury or work around an injury, um, what it's like to recover afterwards. My God, man, the first time I played, literally, I think I came back and just laid on the couch and I only played for like 45 minutes to an hour, right? So I play that first week. I took two weeks off. I played again this last weekend and I played better, first of all, which was great. I played better. Uh, Conditioning was better. I played for like an hour and a half, but man, I was wrecked for like two or three days afterward. 
So just really remembering, you know, as you get older, you get further away from sport itself, right? You kind of remember and you remember the highlights, but you don't remember what it was feel like to just feel smashed after a game, right? You don't want to move. You don't want to stretch. Maybe you don't want to do that recovery session. So it just gives you that extra level of empathy for the athletes that you're coaching. And you just remember like, hey, man, this is a process. This is work to get yourself ready to play at a high level, to go out, compete, to come back the next day and kickstart the recovery process so you can do it again the next week. So I think lots of takeaways, Saul. Great questions. Um, Man, I'm enjoying it. I don't know how often I'm going to do it because, again, it does take me a while to recover. Uh, But I also feel, on the other hand, like I'm kind of playing my way into shape here. So maybe if I do it like every other week, something like that, I think that's going to be a good rhythm and a good routine. But, man, it's been a great experience, and I've learned a ton along the way. Okay, our next question comes from Erica, and this is a pretty long one, but I want to read the whole thing so you have some context here because I think there's a lot of layers to this question. So Erica wants to know, what strategies would you have for a fat loss client who has plateaued due to battling multiple minor injuries that slowed our training progress? So she has a client, 30 years old, who is wanting to reduce body fat and lose weight. She says, we have been consistent in training, tracking nutrition, working to reduce stress, and tackling sleep. Not all at once. It's been one thing at a time. She said, we have recently had to dial back training to work more correctives for the various injuries while still pushing intensity where we can. We are strength training two times a week, and she is long distance biking one hour two to three times per week. It seems like we can't seem to crack the nut with nutrition because we're carefully navigating tracking, but not being overly obsessive because this client has a history of a poor relationship with food, namely under eating. So she says, I know this is a loaded question, and I don't know if this is the right venue, but appreciate any advice. So Erica, man, you're not kidding. This is a loaded question, Uh, but I like the fact that you gave... uh, a lot of feedback here because I think there are a lot of layers to this and I think you need to be careful how you proceed. First and foremost, I think you are absolutely on the right track. Recovery has to come first. When somebody has multiple injuries, and we'll talk more about the types of injuries here in a minute, but when somebody has multiple injuries and it's constantly like they're fighting one thing after another, this is where recovery really becomes important. And I don't think I put this in the cert. Uh, but I put it in other presentations over the years, and it's basically like this pyramid, right? Sometimes it's a pyramid, sometimes it's a flow chart, but like the base of the pyramid is your client or athlete's ability to recover. Are they fueling their body appropriately? Are they getting enough rest? Are they meditating regularly? Do, are they in the right mindset uh, or mind space? Um, are they managing stress? Like those are the key constituents of training progress. And nobody wants to talk about that, right? Like recovery isn't sexy to talk about, but man, you could be slaying your training, doing all the right things with training. But if your client or athlete can't recover from the training that they're doing, it's not going to matter. They're not going to get the adaptations that you want. So the first thing that I would ask you is what type of injuries are we talking about here? Uh, If we're talking about like soft tissue injuries, muscle pulls, that sort of thing, then my advice to you would probably be different than if it's, oh man, she tweaks her back uh, when she's doing things in the gym, right? So you need to figure out, is this something that's more like soft tissue injuries where there's certain training modalities that you can employ that might help? 
or is it something where it's more exercise driven, right? Like we're just not choosing the right activities. And if we choose better activities, uh, then maybe we keep her healthier. So that's something I would have to ask you and I'd probably need to get some feedback on. So what type of injuries are we seeing? But I think the big elephant in the room here is nutrition. And when we're talking about nutrition, I'm going to link to my interview I did with Mark Bubbs uh, a couple years ago now. Mark is just such a smart guy. I love his thought process. But really, when you're training an athlete, because that's what this woman is, right? Like she's going out, she's long distance cycling a couple days a week. She's training with you a couple times a week. You really got to think about, is she adequately fueling herself to do these things? So carbohydrates and fats. Is she getting enough fuel on one hand? And on the flip side of this, is she getting enough repair? And again, this comes back to some of these muscle pulls, soft tissue injuries. Is she getting enough protein in her diet to adequately repair her body after these training sessions? So I would refer you to Mark, listen to that episode, maybe share that with her um, to try and help her understand you're an athlete. You have to fuel your body like an athlete. You can't undereat because you're not going to perform the way that you want. Um, now, with that being said, I would also be very willing to refer this person out to a specialist if that is warranted. If somebody has what you think is the inklings or starting points or the history of an eating disorder, then you need to find a specialist that can help manage this better because it's not just the nutrition side. There's a huge mental component there that goes beyond what you or I are trained to deal with. So that may be something that you need to look into as well. And you got to be careful about how you relay that message. But a lot of times it's just like, hey, look, um, I've got this specialist that I think can really help you. We know we have to fuel more. Let's try and get you hooked up with them so that we can really sort this nutrition out and make sure you're fueling your body appropriately. So a couple ideas there with regards to nutrition. Hopefully those will help. Next, let's talk training. Big thing for me is thinking about building connective tissue via volume. A lot of endurance people that I've seen over the years just don't have great connective tissue strength. They haven't spent enough time in the gym. You know, they go and they run for incredible distances or they bike. You know, they do all these things that focus on endurance and work capacity, but they don't build that connective tissue strength that will help keep them healthy. So couple thoughts here. Number one, high rep sets. Now, chances are you're already doing that. And I don't mean like sets of 20, but you know, we're talking eights, tens, twelves, maybe as high as 15s, but working with some intensity with that volume. One of the big issues that I see with endurance athletes is that they'll do a set of eight, right? And they'll literally like count to eight and they'll rack the weight. And I'm like, was that hard? No. Okay. What was your RPE? Oh, it was like a five. No, if you're going to do a set of eight, it's got to be a hard set of eight. So they've got to be like at eight and a half or nine RPE. So they're really challenging themselves. So you can do high rep sets. You can do slow time under tension, right? Where you're maybe doing like three or four second eccentrics. You can do isometric holds. All of these things will help build those connective tissues. And then with regards to exercise selection, a lot of times if it is somebody that maybe deals with more back stuff, right? Or they have like SI joint issues. A lot of times bilateral symmetrical activities make those issues worse. So 
one of my general rules for just helping people move and feel better is incorporating a lot more split stance activities, asymmetrical activities, single arm activities, basically get them out of the mantra of just, hey, back squat, front squat, deadlift, barbell bench press, get them out of that truly like sagittal plane movement, start to get them rotating, start to get them into split stances, staggered stances, playing around with all those different postures and positions tends to help free a lot of things up. You recapture some motion and ultimately they feel better. So Erica, like I said, Kind of a long answer there, but I think that's a really complex person you're dealing with. Um, I'd need a little bit more info to say, yes, definitively do this. But hopefully some of those thoughts and some of those insights will give you ideas as to how to train this woman better going forward. Okay, my friend, quick break from the show to remind you about the upcoming Complete Coach Seminar, March 24th through 26th. Luca Hasavar's amazing Vigor Ground Fitness and Performance in Seattle, Washington. We are going to have an amazing weekend. Telling you, assessments, program design, coaching and cueing, progressions and regressions. Most importantly, being in that live setting, in that live environment, we're going to be able to dive in and answer the questions that you have about training. It's my favorite part about seminars is having those live interactions, being able to work through the struggles and the issues that you're going through to help you become a better trainer, coach, or rehab professional. So if you're interested in attending, please go right now to completecoachcertification.com forward slash seminar. Again, completecoachcertification.com forward slash seminar. Okay, back to the show. All right, our next question comes from Jen, and I absolutely love this one. It came into uh, my DMs on Instagram and was kind of hidden, so I think this was from last time, but I just love this question and the way she worded it. So Jen wants to know, why are wedges everywhere in every squat? I know they can help people with limited ankle mobility, but is using a wedge preferable to not using one? Thank you. So Jen, first off, the way you li- you, you frame that was just really great. Um, I agree. I feel like we see s- squat wedges in every squat on the internet now. Like, it's not cool if you're not squatting with a wedge. I'm also old enough to n- remember 20 years ago when everybody was squatting in Chuck Taylor's and Louis Simmons, rest in peace, had that famous quote of, don't have you know, $100 squat shoes in a 10-cent squat. <laughs> so, first off. I want to I want to challenge this assumption that it's an ankle mobility issue. Uh, I shot a YouTube video about this a while back. I'll make sure I link to that in the show notes. But this is not just an ankle mobility issue. If that were the case, people would go bang out 10 reps of the wall ankle mobility drill or whatever your favorite ankle mobi- mobilization is, and they would go and be able to squat perfectly after the fact. It doesn't work like that. What we're dealing with here is a issue with somebody's ability to manage their center of gravity. So sometimes I've struggled to explain this in the past, but I had a basketball player that was actually in today. He's going through a pretty complicated rehab process. And I tried to explain this to him. Like if I make you stand up and if you're sitting somewhere and you can do this, try this out, stand up, shift all your weight to your toes, and then try and squat down to the best of your ability. It's not going to go well, right? Like the further forward you are, the more muscle tension your body creates to keep you from falling over. And we know muscle tension and bad joint position is going to rob you, rob you of your ability 
to demonstrate mobility, right? So again, try this sometime. Stand up, shift your weight to your toes, you know, try and squat down as low as you can. It's not going to go very well. So what we have instead is a center of gravity issue. And, you know, the squat wedges do help with this. The second I put your whole foot on a slant board, your natural tendency, your natural tendency would be to get pushed forward. So your body says, uh-uh, I don't want to fall forward. So you shift your center of gravity back. It shuts off all that extra muscle tension and muscle tone. Now you have a better chance of changing levels effectively. Okay, so it's not an ankle mobility issue. It is a whole body center of gravity issue that we're chasing here. Now, the other cool thing about this is heel wedges are just one way we can address this, right? Chances are everybody and their mother knows if somebody doesn't back squat particularly well, give them a front squat, give them an anterior load, and now their squat looks squattier. So there's levels to this, right? Like how do you want the squat to look? And then what modifications do you want to put in place as their trainer or as their coach to help them squat more effectively? So I think squat wedges are amazing. I get paid nothing to say this, but I think the prime squat wedges are absolutely fantastic. I don't know how we dealt without them at IFAST because they have like the single and the double wedges, but I really like those. Now, one other thing I want to say before I, I stop rambling on this topic is you know, a lot of people ask, well, you know, should everybody be using them? And, you know, in some cases, yes, there are absolutely people that can and should use them, but there's other people that don't need them, right? Like I have certain clients that move incredibly well. They have all the requisite mobility to squat effectively without a wedge. So I think this is one of those things where just because everybody's doing it on the internet doesn't mean most people know why they're doing it or how it's positively or negatively impacting the people they train. So don't be you know, a blind sheep and following the crowd. Figure out, hey, who does a squat wedge work for? Who is gonna move more efficiently or more effectively by using a wedge? And one of the great things that, that we have at our gym, again, with these different wedges, is we have different heights. So for some people, a 10 degree wedge is all I need. And it just gives them that little bit of shift back, now, all of a sudden, muscle tension's reduced, joint position's improved, and their squat looks beautiful. Other people, right, some of these athletes that I work with that are incredibly stiff, incredibly rigid, they've got a lot of stuff going on, you know, not just like through their nervous system, but as a result, you know, they've got all this concentric muscle activity that's keeping them from being able to display their athleticism. Man, some of these guys I have to get on a 20 or even a 30 degree slant to start to shift them back and start to teach them how to change levels again, okay? So Jen, I really hope this helps answer your question. Again, I'll put this video in the show notes uh, that I shot a while back. Hopefully it helps, and hopefully that gives you a better understanding as to why squat wedges can positively impact your client or athlete's movement. All right, my next question comes from my guy, Joseph Hawthorne. Joseph, appreciate you, man. Thanks for the question. Uh, Joseph wants to know isometrics. Favorite ways to use them, when to program them, and ideal situations. So, man, first off, I would refer you to two resources. Number one, the interview I did with Alex Natera. Again, I'll put that in the show notes. Man, show notes are going to be 
dense this time. I'm going to spend more time uh, writing show notes than I am producing the show. But the podcast I did with Alex Natera, we we talk about this amongst many other topics, but it's a fantastic primer. Uh, If you haven't done the Sportsmith Isometrics course, it's fantastic as well. Um, But one of the things that I want to say before I dive into this topic is even if you listen to Alex, and Alex is probably what most people would consider to be like the foremost uh, expert on isometrics these days, is that isometrics are one part of a program. And I think they're hot right now. There's a lot of buzz behind them. Everybody's talking about ISOs, ISOs, ITROs, you know, PIMAs, HEMAs, all this stuff. ISOs are great, but even Alex will tell you they're one part of a program, right? Now, powerful tool, yes. But if they're the only tool in your arsenal, that's a problem. Okay, so reasons I like them, ways I use them. Number one, we talked about it up top. I love ISOs for testing. Um, You don't need technique, right? You don't need to know how to squat or deadlift effectively to do isometric testing. So that part is great. Um, The other great part about isometric testing is I get so much more data. Um, Not to plug Hawken too hard, uh, because I think you guys know I love the force plates and I love working with them. But man, just the sheer amount of metrics that I can pull from that, borderline overwhelming, but man, I get so much more information and it allows me to make better decisions with my clients and athletes. So I love ISOs for testing. Now, the most commonly used terms, right? You'll have HEMAs and PEMAs. So HEMAs are your holding isometric muscle actions. Now, if you go back and listen to this episode, episode that I did with Alex, you know, HEMAs are what I would describe as yielding isometrics, right? So lots of ways you can break this down, but I like yielding isometrics for, you know, some of the the people that are dealing with maybe joint-based issues. Uh, They have pain coming in and out of positions. Maybe they have tendinopathy. And I know if Jared and Flick listen to this, he might roll his eyes a little bit. But there are certain people uh, that have some analgesic effects. You know, if you're dealing with quad tendinopathy or patellar tendinopathy, you go and you do some isometric, long isometric holds or HEMAs or yielding ISOs, you can get some analgesic effects and you can get those tendons to calm down a little bit. So, you know, I'll use HEMAs early in an off season. Uh, I'll use them as a tool to get some some eccentric orientation of muscles. So if you follow Bill and you listen to all the great things Bill's talking about, you know, if you've got a very concentrically oriented muscle, if you take said muscle and you put it in a position and make it hold itself up for an extended period of time, you can hopefully, due to stress response and stress relaxation, allow that muscle to become more eccentrically oriented. And I think there's a lot of benefits to that. So I will absolutely use yielding ISOs early in the off season. Uh, I'll use them anytime somebody's having some of those tendon type issues, right? So it's really prevalent in my basketball guys, um, whether it's a Spanish squat, a leg extension, uh, long duration ISO, uh, a seated calf raise ISO, I really like those for the analgesic response, for creating some eccentric muscle orientation and just getting things to chill out a little bit. Now, on the flip side of this, we have our PIMAs, right? Our pushing isometric muscle actions, or I think what Bill would describe as overcoming isometrics. So I think the best part about PIMAs is using them 
prior to the start of a season, right? They are great for rapid force production and really teaching those muscles and those tendons to fire, right? Very quickly, lock everything down and then relax. So they're great for rate of force development. So if you kind of think about an off-season program, right? Maybe the first block, you're chasing movement quality, you're trying to recapture joint position, so you use your hemas there. Your second block, maybe now it's more force production focused, right? Maybe you do some, some hemas or pimas, you start to kind of like transition. But then that preseason, right before somebody goes to camp, that's where I'd probably do a lot of pimas, overcoming isos, rapid force production. I'd probably also pair those, those really rapid uh, isos with explosive plyometric activities, right? So it's like, turn it on quick, relax. Turn it on quick, relax. Maybe it's a, a squat ISO, right? Or some form of like single leg um, ISO hold. You're doing that and then you're gonna go and you're gonna do a box jump. Or you're gonna go and do a single leg takeoff or a single leg vertical jump. So you're really chasing rate and power production right before somebody goes to camp. So man, there's there's a lot that could be said about this, Joseph. Um, those are just a couple instances, but I hope it gives you some insight as to how I would use isometrics in my training with my athletes. All right, save the best one for last. Uh, and I can't attribute this question to any one person because <laughs> legitimately about 30 people on Instagram messaged me about this yesterday. So the question is, Mike, why is this the last IFAST internship group ever? I mean, there's a lot of emotion here. There's a lot of mixed feelings about this. And quite frankly, this should be an entire episode at some point in time, and maybe it will be. Just the evolution of IFAST, uh, the things that we've been through, uh, where we're at now, kind of the vision going forward. But I think to give you a good answer, you have to understand where this all started from. And in 2005, 2006, when I'm just starting to cut my teeth as a trainer, as a coach, like there is this prevailing myth in the industry. And the sad thing is we didn't know this was a myth back then. But the myth back in 2005, 2006, 2007 is that, look, if you're a great trainer, you own a gym, period, right? Look around. Eric Cressy has a gym. Joe DeFranco has a gym. Uh, Alan Cosgrove has a gym. Mike Boyle has a gym. Like look at all the people that are doing things at a high level. They all own a gym. So that's just natural, right? Like at the time I'm doing in-home training and now the goal is, hey, I'm gonna run a gym. But here's the thing about owning a gym, my friend. Like the second you own a gym, you don't just own a gym, you are running a business. And getting started is the easy part. Like quite frankly, like people might not wanna hear that, but getting a training business off the ground is the easiest part because your energy is the highest. Right? When are you ever more excited about your business than when, when you open? Right? I was working crazy hours. Crazy hours, right? I'm up at 4.45. I'm in the gym by 5.45. I'm training 6 uh, a.m. to 7 p.m. Uh, you know, Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, bills in Wednesdays and Saturdays. So even on my off days, I'm in, right? Because I love it. Who wouldn't want to be in their gym, right? Like this is years of building, years of dreaming. Now it's here. Here's the realization, my friend, like at some point the honeymoon wears off and now you're not just running a business. You're not just coaching anymore. Now you are running a training and coaching business. 
It's not just me and Bill hanging out, being bros, doing the stuff that we love to do. No, now we have employees. We have staff, right? And don't get me wrong. Like, this is not a negative thing. Like, we have had some of the best people come through our doors, some amazing trainers and coaches. Like, look at look at the resume, right? Joe Ken talks all the time about the coaching tree. Look at our coaching tree. Look at how many of our former interns are running incredibly successful private gyms, are working in Major League Baseball, in the NBA, working at major college universities. Like, the resume is pretty stacked. Man, I'm so proud of that. But it just gets to a point where, man, now it, I'm so focused on running a business that I'm getting away from the thing that I love most, which is coaching. Like, if you talk to any employee we've ever had, they'll probably tell you, hopefully, hopefully they'd say this, Mike, Mike's a pretty good coach. Like, he's a pretty good coach. But he's a way better coach than he is a manager or business person. And I'm okay with that, right? I'm okay with that. Like, that's that's kind of how things played out for us. You know, we never had uh, a Pete Dupuy to really come in and lock down all of our operations, all of our systems, to be the backbone to the business side of our business, right? And I think the most successful fitness businesses always have that person, right? You got the great trainer on one side that's pushing the technical side, And then you got somebody behind the scenes that's doing all the business stuff. And they're as excited about the business stuff as you are about the training. The only downside to IFAS is Bill and I are both super excited about training and we're not nearly as excited about running a business. If we could just have people show up, right, and and train, that would be amazing. If we just had this steady supply of people that wanted to come in and work for us, that would be amazing. But it doesn't always work like that. And one of the, the issues that we've had over the years is, man, every time we, we develop somebody and we get them to a really high level, man, best believe other people want them, right? There was a, a point in time where I sit back and I realize, man, uh, okay, our last handful of hires, where did they go? Oh, they went to the Atlanta Hawks. <laughs> they went to Google slash Exos. Uh, they went to the Indiana Pacers. Man, like, it's hard to compete with that. So... Bringing this full circle, why is the the IFAST internship uh, stopping as as it currently is, is because this last year, and I know I talked about this on the show, but I don't think people were fully aware of it. We just got to a point where, you know, we wanted our staff to be able to have more say in how they do things. So we took all of our staff, we took Dave, Jesse, and we said, hey, we're going to turn you guys loose. You guys can be independent contractors. That way you can set your own hours, you can name your own rates, you can kind of work for yourself. And while that's fantastic for them, there is a limitation in the sense that I can't tell Dave, hey, uh, by the way, you have to manage these interns, right? Or I can't tell Jesse, hey, you got to watch Blaze today and take him through all this stuff. They don't work for us anymore. That's how an independent contractor relationship works. So, you know, we just kind of got to this point where it's like, I want... The people that were my staff, I want them to be able to make their own choices and their own decisions that allow them to be most successful. Uh, And also things that allow me time to focus on what I'm most passionate about. And while I absolutely love working with interns, I can't have an intern just follow me for three, four hours a day and call that an internship. 
It doesn't work. Like they need to be there for extended periods of time. They need to see multiple people coaching. Um, and so that's kind of where the internship has just, it's come to a point where like, I love it, but we can't keep it going in its current format. So this summer, I know I'm going to have very dedicated hours. So, Hey, look, I've already got one person lined up. Love you, Sandy. Excited to get you in. But it's really not an intern class with just one person. That's why I'd love to have one or two more people in there because what happens is when you have a group of interns, now they're pushing each other, right? You know, they're not in a bad way, but they're trying to one up each other. It's like, okay, hey, uh, I'm working on this. I understand this. And the other person's like, oh man, I don't understand that, but I do understand this thing. So they're constantly pushing and challenging each other. So I'm excited about that. I don't look at it as a negative. Um, Is it weird? Yes. Yes. And the outpouring of support I've gotten uh, since I posted that the other day has been just unimaginable, right? From people I've, you know, just known over the years that have followed IFAST loosely uh, to all of the amazing interns that kind of shocked, you know, I guess I didn't expect that response. Um, but man, so many of our, our former interns reach out and we're like, oh my gosh, what happened? Is everything okay? And I'm like, yes, yes, man, everything is fine. It's just the next evolution. It's the next step because in case you haven't noticed, like I'm not going anywhere. Like the con ed, uh, pushing this game as far as we can, I'm in this for a lifetime. Um, and man, that's why I've been trying to crank out even more content in 2023 than I have in years past. Uh, I'm training and coaching on the regular every day because that's what I like. That's what I'm most passionate about. And just because I'm not necessarily taking on interns doesn't mean I'm not out there working with people that want to get better as trainers and coaches. I think last year we did three of our complete coach seminars. We've got one already booked this year. You know, I've got a couple other potential speaking engagements that I'm lining up. So it's like, look, I think the hardest part is being okay with the fact that, man, we had a pretty damn good 15-year run, right? Like like an amazing 15-year run. Like, And I'm a humble person, uh, but man, it's been a really great 15-year run, but all things come to an end. And just because it's an end doesn't mean you can't have a new beginning. You can't evolve. You can't change the way that you're doing things to continue to push things and push this industry forward. So that's kind of where I'm at with all this. Um, Like I said, uh, I really didn't expect um, all of the messages, all of the DMs. I appreciate it. Um, But just know and understand that just because this one thing that we've done for a long period of time is going away doesn't mean that there aren't amazing things to be had down the line. So, okay. I think that does it for this week's episode, my friend. Like I said, uh, a lot going on here. Um, I, as always, appreciate your support. Appreciate you listening in every week. Uh, I didn't really talk about this up top, but 2022 was our absolute best year ever as a podcast. And man, we're killing it in 2023 as well. I've got great people lined up. I'm excited about you know all the great content we're going to be pushing out, not just via the podcast, but RTS. So, My friend, as always, thank you so much for your support. Love and appreciate you. And we'll be back next week with our next episode. Take care.